You may want to just keep clapping because it may take a while for Dale to sit down. Um, <laughs> oh. 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 I know, sorry. Hi, how are you doing? I know they are. Yeah, no. Thin, thin ice. Thin ice. Bless you. Um, pray healing in Jesus' name. Um, uh, hi, how are you doing? Um, my name's James. I work for a charity called International Justice Mission. And by the grace of God, we're the largest anti-slavery organization in the world, um, which just praise God because we're just a group of Christians across the globe, um, just in all these different nations uh, coming out of the church and raised up to see the oppressed set free. And it was just amazing to hear some of the prayers at the beginning about freedom and about God being our freedom fighter. And just this idea that ultimately we want to be set free from the slavery of sin. But isn't it just amazing that there are Christians across this globe? And so it's just a real privilege uh, because Andre runs one of our teams. In Thailand, he's out there rescuing people from the fishing industry where they're in, trapped in slavery. Um, and just to give you a sense, uh, that means that Andre kind of does two things. It means that um, he's a lawyer. He's there trying to seek justice for the oppressed. But he's also basically a pastor looking after this incredible team of about 30 people, mostly uh, people from Thailand who are Christians who are being risen up, which is just uh, such a privilege. So Andre's going to come up. He's going to share just about what it means to see freedom happen. Um, and I just wanted to say thank you as well, because over Christmas, you guys uh, supported a couple of charities, and we were one of them. And just so, so grateful for that. Just so, so grateful that you come alongside us and want to see the oppressed set free. That's just incredible. There's this little form on your seats. Just wanted to give you the heads up on it. This is just coming away from today. If you feel convicted to pray with us, we're trying to raise up a prayer movement. Um, my wife, uh, we were at a prayer event yesterday. And my wife um, uh, saw me sitting in a room. And the room just happened to be called the Wilberforce Room. And I was praying with a group of people from across a few churches about seeing an abolitionist movement rise up. And she comes over to me and she's like, James, I didn't tell you, but actually my Bible reading for this morning in this little book called Inspiring Women was called It's Not Just William. And the whole, oh, wow. And the whole, um, the whole session and my whole Bible reading was just on William Wilberforce, which just was oh, just such a God moment. And so um, if you want to pray with us, we just want to see a prayer movement rise up. Feel free to see that. If you want to support us financially, then that's such, that'd be amazing, but no pressure. But there's just an opportunity to learn a bit more about us here, um, but feel no pressure because more than anything, we're just super grateful for everything you're doing and how we're seeing the church rise up to be the hands and feet of God. So let me invite Andre up, running our office in Thailand, being that pastor, being that lawyer who is seeing the oppressed set free. Andre, come forward. All right. Is that good? Okay. Well, thank you uh, for the very warm welcome. Uh, King's Church, this is lovely to be here. Um, I'm in the UK for just about, uh, just about a week, and uh, this is my only chance to worship with a, a, people, uh, a group of Christ followers from a local community right here. So it's just a great honor and privilege. I love to be, uh, to be able to worship God uh, in a place where Christians are gathered in their own community. And so uh, I have a chance to do that with you here this morning, and I, I just appreciate you welcoming us, welcoming me, and um, uh, we're in it together. We're the body of Christ together, wherever we are around the world, uh, just called to do the things that he's asking us to do in front of us. So today, I have a few of those uh, kinds of words of encouragement. I, I just pray that the Spirit will make my words alive um, 
uh, in, his, uh, in his power. So, um, I'm, I'm, uh, it's Mother's Day back in, in Canada, so I, I, my mom lives in Canada. I'm from Canada, more or less. Uh, my, 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 the other significant mother in my life is my wife. We have two little girls, uh, so I have to navigate time zones and make sure I call the right one at the right time. I've got my, my wife, I, I was able to call her this morning, I, I, was, I neglected the preparation for Mother's Day, which as you, yeah, that's not good, is it? It's not, I'm starting off, it's not good. But my, my daughter is nine years old, and so I've given her some detailed set of instructions about what we will see by the end of the day if she's carried out those well-thought-out plans. My, um, yeah, so uh, we'll just see. That's on my mind. It's on my mind this morning, but um, I'll move past it. I have some photos. I wanted, you, I wanted to show you some photos of my, my family because I think that's good. This is my... My wife is there. See, that's my wife, uh, Jen, and this is our daughter. Uh, Michelle is the older one, and then Agnes. So we're a little an international family. I'm, a, I'm an American and Canadian. You can kind of tell by the, the, my talking. And then my wife is American, and then my, my little girl here, my nine-year-old, Michelle, uh, we adopted in the Philippines when we lived there. Uh, and then Agnes, our youngest, we, was born in India. Uh, so, it's, um, so we've sort of grown in numbers also, but uh, in our own way around the world. I have another one here. Do one more picture of the family. Uh, excuse me. So there it is. This, is. this is what we all look like sort of now. Uh, we took this one when we were on a visa run in Laos just recently. So there they are, the, the Sachenkos. Uh, anyway, um, so, uh, so IJM. Um, IJM is a, a, a group of people who are set sent to do a couple of things. Uh, and the main, our main mission is to protect poor people from violence. Uh, so the idea is that uh, we would, and our, and our vision really, is that we would be able to see the rescue of thousands of people uh, and the protection of millions of people um, through the enforcement of laws, actually, uh, laws that are rightly on the books uh, in the governments all around the world, that those laws would be enforced and that millions of people would be protected and that, and that by doing that, we would be able to actually prove that in this day, in the most broken parts of the world, justice for the poor is really possible. It's practically possible for poor people to see justice in the world today. And um, so that's our, our vision, and that's our mission. That's what we're about at IJM. And we're driven at IJM. We're people who are, are believers in Christ, followers of Christ, and we're driven by our connection to him. And our heartbeat, really, is... Um, on earth as it is in heaven. You know, we are, are people who are people of prayer, uh, and we're people who try to live what we pray. And, uh, and for me, on earth as it is in heaven, is uh, what challenges me uh, when, I, when I speak and when I walk out in the morning, that I would be able to live in this reality that the kingdom of heaven is here, and it's not yet here, right? It's already here, but then it's not yet already here. And I'm praying that, right? And then I feel in my spirit when I pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, I feel that the spirit is saying to me, yeah, okay, let's do this, right? Um, we're the body, right? We're, we're the body together. And if we're the body of Jesus, then we're his presence in the world. And if we're his presence in the world, then we're doing the things that he's doing, right? Because that's who we are. Not because we have to like coach ourselves to do it, we just do it because we're his body, right? And, and so we're bringing his kingdom and, and the, 
So, so just some things about the kingdom. Um, of course, the terms of the kingdom are defined by the king. That's the way kingdoms go. And, um, and we read in the Psalms, I'm happy that you're reading the Psalms, because I'm, I'm going to talk about the Psalms just a, a little bit, right? The Psalms, um, Psalm 90, 97 says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. So the throne of the king, right, the place where he sits down, the, the seat of his authority, where he sits and reigns, right, the foundation of his throne, that's like underneath the throne, the, even, even underneath the foundation of his authority, the basis, right, is, his, is who he is. It's his character, right? He's not resting the foundations of his throne on something else, right? It, some kings, when they would reign, they, they would, or some rulers, powerful people, right, they would, they would rule from a place of something else, right? Maybe their wealth, what else? Maybe their army. Um, what else would people rule from? They could rule from their wisdom. Some, some powerful people would rule from their good ideas, um, their creativity. Um, people could rule from um, ancestry, right? From their birthright. Because they're the son of somebody, that means they have the right to rule, right? But, but the scripture says that our God reigns because of who he is, his, his character, right? Who, his I am who I am. He reigns because he is God, right? And, and here, the psalmist expounds on that, builds on that, and says, no, the foundation is righteousness and justice. So I think it's interesting, right? I think it's interesting, and I, so we won't talk uh, too, too much more about that, but it's interesting to note that the qualities that are at the foundation of God's, um, of God's rule and power and reign are Righteousness and justice, rightness and justice. It's the core. It's right in the core of his qualities that's about who he is. So to me, then that means something about me, right? It means that for me, as a Christ follower, because I'm becoming more like him and I'm his body on the earth, also in me, that quality is going to come out, right? It's, not a, it's a matter of destiny. Like, it's not a matter of exertion or will or, you know, it's not a matter of that. It's just, a, it's just going to happen, right? Because we will become more like Christ in the world. Okay. I, you know, I can say I can talk about this stuff forever. But um, so I'm, I'm saying that uh, these, things are in the, uh, these things are in the scripture and we are going to, be, uh, we are going to become like he is, uh, which is people of justice and righteousness because that's who he is and he's, and he's on the throne. Um, so another thing we learn in the scriptures uh, is that every person without distinction is made in the image of God, uh, and he loves them, right? And, and the scriptures say that when a sparrow falls to the ground, the father knows, and he says that people are worth more than sparrows. So everyone is precious, right? Um, but what we know from experience is that we're not yet in the kingdom. We know from experience that there's brokenness in the world. Uh, we know that uh, if we read the news, we see lots more brokenness all around it. We know I, that young girls are being sold into uh, commercial sexual exploitation in the Dominican Republic. Uh, we know that there's child labor in mines in the, in the Dominican, or in the, the DRC, in the Congo. Um, we know that there are men who are left hopeless for years at sea in Thailand uh, on fishing boats. We know that there are whole families who are sold into bondage in brick kilns in India. We know that, right? And yet, at the same time, we know that our God considers each of them precious, like 
like the sparrows that fall on the ground. More than that, more than that, right? And he knows every one of them. So it, it, that sort of unleashes a lot of questions, right? What is the deal, right? What is going on? Does God see it? Does he see it, right? And then when he sees it, what is he thinking, right? And what is he feeling? And, and when is he going to do something about it, right? I think that those are the questions that ring in our minds because if that is if it's true that those things are happening, but it's also true that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne, then, then why and when and how and what, right? What is going on? And so I think those are the questions, and there's a lot I don't understand about the world, but I know that, I know that it's true that God hates injustice, and I know that he's making all things new. I know that. Those things are true. Um, and, and so it, then the question is, well, what about me? What about the personal application? Um, and so uh, I think the conclusion that I have is that since I'm part of the body, and since the body is his presence on earth, and since he is about making all things new, then my conclusion is that he's sent that his body is going to be the, the plan to actually bring the kingdom to earth, right? That, that his body, that he, he is going to do this through the people of God, through his church, which is his body, and that's me. Um, and I think what's also true is that actually God is responding to injustice in the world. Um, the timing I haven't got all worked out. Why doesn't it happen instantly? I don't know. Why, why is it that these things even happen at all? Why do people just suffer like that? Again, I don't have all the answers to that, but what I know is that that Jesus hears the cries of the oppressed and that he does answer and he does respond and he does it through his body and his body is us. It's me and it's you. Um, and his body is, and, and, his, and his response is directed to specific people, not to generic issues, not to faceless statistics, right? His, his body is not directed in response just to 45 million slaves in the world today, although there are 45 million slaves in the world today. But the but his, his response is to each individual one, every last one. He knows, where, he knows all of their names. He knows where they came from. He knows the destiny that he has for them in their lives. And he knows how they need to be responded to. And his response plan is his body. And his body is us. Um, and it's us today. And it's us tomorrow. And it's us the day after that. And it's us the day after that. And so, um, I think that's... Uh, I think that's stunning. And when I, when I realized that, um, it was about 20 years ago, and I was just out of university, and I said to God, I said, God, like, um, first of all, this is too big for me. Second, I'm so happy that I know that you, that you, that you want to do something. But I, and so I just asked God, will you please help me to, will you give me the honor of being able to fight injustice in my life? Um, and so... Uh, Five, five, a few years later, I was in law school, and a few years after that, I was practicing law, and a few years like, after that, I was uh, in Thailand with International Justice Mission, and I've been in, in Asia for 14 years. And, uh, and I, couldn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't be happier to have that be my part of the kingdom. And, and you don't have that, you all have different callings, and, and I hope you delight in those, and I hope you do them to the best of your ability, because God, through his body, is doing, is doing many things all around the world. Um, so... Let me tell you a few more things about what he's doing uh, in our part. I want to show just a little, uh, I just want to show a little video. He puts the 99 into the pen. 
and he goes after and he searches for the lost sheep until he finds it. And he's very particular with that language. He goes after the sheep until he finds it. And to me, that just shows the relentlessness of our father. What we do at IJM is we go look for that lost sheep, that girl that's being abused, and we will search for her until we find her. That's how our father has loved us. That's how we are called to love others. Not to search for them until we've satisfied ourselves. Not to search for them until it gets really hard. But to go after them until we find them. To be relentless in our love for those that are abused, for those that are oppressed, for those that are being held down. Yeah, I love that. I love that video um, because it's true, because our God is, is relentless and he's pursued us and he pursues every one of the people um, who, who we may feel is lost. So I'm going to tell you a story about that man, um, the man right here. Uh, his name is Raman. And Raman, uh, is, he's one of my favorite stories. Uh, his story is one of my favorite stories uh, at IJM. And, and, um, and here it is. So Raman... Um, was uh, sold into, or was, uh, was trapped into slavery uh, when he was just a young man, uh, a young boy, actually. Uh, after he finished the fourth grade, he, uh, his family took an advance of money for desperate, uh, they were in desperate circumstances, uh, even knowing what would happen to him because his grandfather had been a slave, his father had been a slave, um, but they were still desperate for money, and they were um, basically uh, exploitative people in their community were, uh, who had operated a, a rice mill who would offer to give uh, loans to families when they needed money. And Raman's uh, family needed money. Raman was just in the fourth grade, but um, there was nothing else they felt like they could do about it. And so he, he went to work, and the family took a little bit of money. The owner, like he always did, uh, kept people enslaved by uh, charging massive interest rates that made it so that people could never repay loans, uh, and then abused the people who worked in his, brick, in his rice mill by, uh, by beatings, by incredibly long hours and brutal working conditions. Um, and by effectively, through the debt bondage, making it so that they would never, ever be able to pay back their debts. Um, he also lived right across, the owner lived there, and the people lived right across the street and worked at the rice mill, and so he terrorized them through, um, through, his, uh, through the force of his, uh, uh, of, his, of his men, his thugs, who would, who would beat people who would dare to try to run away or who would dare to try to um, get out of the arrangement in some other way. Raman was enslaved, so he was enslaved for a long period of time. Then he got married, still enslaved. He, was, he had kids. They were, all still, uh, they were all still in that situation of slavery as a family. Um, Raman would work about 20 hours a day, uh, every day, um, and would get paid next to nothing, uh, living on the edge of starvation, effectively not being able to provide for anything in their lives, with no, absolutely no sign, no sign of hope. His grandfather and his father and he still living in that situation of slavery. So IJM started our work uh, about 15 years ago in South India, and we set up our work to, to, to work on cases like Raman's. And so we found out about Raman's case. Uh, we investigated the case. We brought the case to local officials in, in southern India, 
and uh, the local officials in this case acted. Uh, we prevailed upon them to act and they conducted a rescue operation for Raman. This was in 2004, uh, just about when I was joining IJM, although in another country, Raman was rescued. And, uh, and he was brought out into the, into the office and the district official gave him a release certificate that officially is a formal document that releases him from his debts and allows him to go free. Raman, um, amazingly actually, for a man who's full grown and had been frankly in slavery for about 30 years or so by then, um, embraced his freedom, walked out into it strong. He walked out into it strong, which is actually shocking and amazing and miraculous all by itself. So IJM has an aftercare program, a, a program to support and care for victims who have been rescued. And so Raman entered into that program enthusiastically. He, he, he enrolled in training programs and he um, learned some uh, new skills. Uh, he eventually got a job in construction. Uh, he eventually uh, was able to help his family learn some new patterns. They, um, their kids started going to school. They got some goats to farm and he was free, he was free. Um, and it's amazing, right? Not only was he free, but he decided that he wanted to stand up for the other people in his community. So Raman, uh, Raman became a community leader and he would advocate. So here's a picture of Raman standing up in front of a whole bunch of other rescued, uh, rescued slaves and, and coaching them on how to stand up for their rights, right? Under Indian law, people who have been rescued from, from bonded labor, slavery, another word for slavery in, in India, have the right to all kinds of benefits from the government, but they almost never get them because people don't feel empowered to ask for it because there's no mechanism from the government to deliver the services. So people go without all the benefits that they're entitled to, but Raman fought for it, right? And in South Indian bureaucracy, if any of you have ever been to India, uh, you will know that it's not easy to get things done, right? And so you might have to stand in line for days to just get one application filed, right? And then another days to follow up on the application and then something else goes wrong. You might, I mean, it is a long process, but Raman did it. He did it. He stood up and over 70 families benefited from his, his support and advocacy. Um, more recently than that, not, he's so empowered that he went beyond just his district, beyond just the 70 families, now, even just last year, uh, Raman stood up in front of the state government advocating for better laws and better, uh, uh, better laws and better policies and procedures for victims of bonded labor. Awesome. Raman is miraculous. He is, he, he is a true miracle, this man. So, um, but that's not the whole story, right? That, it's enough, but it's not the whole story. So our IJM team back in 2004 took the, the results of the investigation and supported the police in filing um, criminal charges against the owner of that place, that owner who had held people for three generations. Um, and that owner's name was Kandasami. And Kandasami, uh, in fact, was convicted by a local district judge, but a slap on the wrist penalty, um, I think a 500 rupee fine, and a, um, and a prison sentence, as they say in India, until the rising of the court which just means until the court stand, until the judge stands up at the end of the session, right? So he was in custody, restrained, until the judge stood up, right? Which is, you know, in about 30 minutes. Um, so uh, that was the extent of the punishment. And, and sure enough, as you might expect, Kandasami went out, recruited a whole other batch of slaves, and started his operation again. Well, uh, Raman uh, said, no, no way. 
we're, gonna, we're, we're not going to let this happen. And so he worked with IJM to investigate the second batch of it, file another complaint, and this time the police took things more seriously, and he was, and, and higher level of charges were filed. And so there was, a new, uh, there was a new criminal trial that went forward. Now, this one took a little bit more time. But at the end, uh, it, it actually took several years because the charges were more serious. And that's pretty normal in Indian courts. And at IJM, we follow the, the processes and the procedures of the laws of the places where we are, uh, where we are living. Uh, and so we followed that process. And in, in 2010, that's about four years after those charges were filed on the second case, um, in, a, in a tight little courtroom about about as big as this at the end of the wall. I was, I was there, uh, I just happened to be in India at the time, and I was sitting on the side, and uh, the court announced the judgment of conviction against Kandasamy. And you have to understand this is historic. It was the first judgment of conviction on a slavery charge in India since the 19th century. Can you believe it? And it was the longest sentence ever given against a, an owner of a, a rice mill in the state of Tamil Nadu, ever. Five years in prison. Five years in prison, 2010. And so um, what happened? Was it, was it over? Was it all celebration? No, I don't think so. Kandasamy appealed. Uh, Kandasamy appealed, so he, wasn't, he didn't have to go to jail at all. Um, he appealed, and, uh, and so the case went to the Madras High Court, which is, uh, which is the, the big appeals court in, uh, in Chennai. And, uh, and, and that process also took some time. You can say it took some time. It took seven years. Uh, the appeals process took seven years. And uh, during that process, the IJM lawyers did not give up. We didn't give up since 2004. We didn't give up in 2006 when the second case came down. We didn't give up uh, until that conviction came in 2010. And we certainly weren't going to give up. Raman didn't give up. He was there every hearing. He was there standing up, ready, for the, ready to fight for justice in this case. And so uh, the appeal went forward, and our lawyers filed every brief. We fought every delay. Uh, and seven years later, last year, uh, the Madras High Court published a decision, the first decision ever, uh, upholding conviction in a slavery case and an anti-trafficking uh, conviction. Uh, massive landmark case, published. So it's all over the state of, uh, all over the state of Tamil Nadu and all over India. Um, now, uh, the... the uh, the accused, since that point, Kandasamy has actually passed away, but there are two other defendants in that case who are both still fighting the case. They've now appealed it to the Supreme Court. Uh, the Supreme Court of India, uh, in a wonderful decision late last year, decided, uh, based on our advocacy, they would let the men go out on bail, but uh, they would force them to pay, uh, they would force them to pay uh, a huge amount of money for bail, which you would, they, they, show, they pitch themselves as small-time owners with not very much money, but in about two days, they raised a massive amount of cash for bail. And the Supreme Court justice said, okay, thank you for putting that in. I'm going to redistribute that money directly to the laborers. So Raman and all of his family got, uh, our, his family and the other laborers in that, in that rice mill uh, were able to divide up 75 lakh rupees. That's 7.5 million rupees, which is about, um, it's about 100 thousand U.S. dollars, so it's what, about 60,000 60, pounds or so? Not bad, uh, for a, not bad for a family, uh, for a group of families out in rural India, and, uh, and just a great, great blessing and a statement to those families that their lives matter, that their lives matter as much as anybody else, and that statement is powerful. It's a powerful, wonderful message of the kingdom, and it's a sign of the king, right, because his throne 
is, is on a foundation of righteousness and justice, and that is absolutely true. So, I love that story, and it is miraculous, right? And it's stories like that that make it believable to people in slavery that our God is a God of love and a God of justice, right? How are they going to believe that God loves them if they're in slavery? How are they going to believe if he, that he's a God of justice when they see all around them the world being a place of oppression and violence? How is it believable that there's a God of love when that stuff just happens all the time, right? It's believable when God's people come and respond, when his body acts to seek justice and rescue the oppressed. That's when it's believable, right? And so, and so that's what we're about, right? And that's what we're about together because we're, we're the body of Christ. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about prayer. Um, so uh, because at IJM, we rely on the support of prayer around the world, right? We rely on the, on the, on the prayers of victims. We rely on the prayers of uh, our own teams. Uh, we rely on the prayers of people uh, at churches right next door in the same communities as those uh, places of exploitation, and, and also communities here in the UK, um, in Canada, uh, and around the world. We rely on prayer. And why is that, right? It's because we know that his, the, the foundations of his throne are righteousness and justice. Um, it's also because we know um, that he's strong, right? We know that our God is strong, and we know that our God sees all of it, and we know that he's listening, right? We know he's listening. That's one of my favorite pictures of God. Not only is he on a throne, but he's, he's listening to the cries of the oppressed, and he hears them. He hears them, and he responds. He does something. Uh, so uh, for me, in my life, it's helpful to look back on, on prayers, uh, where God has, times when God has been faithful in the past to answer prayers. And I'm thinking about some stories uh, from my time in the Philippines. When I, jo- I joined IJM in 2004, but in 2007, I went to the Philippines. And when I went to the Philippines, um, I was just, uh, things had been a little bit hard in Thailand. Um, and, and I had asked God, will you please just show me some good stories? Um, will you please show me some good news? I was tired. Some, have, you, have you been in a situation before where you're just tired of like, slogging along through some tough times, right? In those days, I was just asking God, can I just have some good stories? Uh, and, uh, and God was, uh, I, I, he, wasn't, he wasn't faithful to provide the good stories because he wanted, because of me and my need for good stories. I'm not that arrogant, but, um, but he did. He did bring uh, beautiful uh, restoration. So in the Philippines, uh, there had been a situation of real impunity for people selling young girls for sexual exploitation for a long time. Um, that just means there were, there were young girls available to be purchased for sexual exploitation and nobody was doing anything about it and there were no consequences. That means people felt they could do it without, just, and just get away with it. So it was happening a lot. Um, and so we started working on these kind of cases in the early 2000s and we would work up case after case and it was hard, case after case after case, and it was slow, and there were not many rescues, and, and investigations were really difficult. And I went in 2006 because we got a big uh, amount of support uh, from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and we could start a big project, and, and we could test it and document it and, and study it. And so we, we did. We went in, and, um, and, and things started to move and change. And we felt, and we hear stories from Christians there saying, you know what, I've been praying that somebody would come and start doing this work for years. And other people would say, you know what, we've been working in this area, and we've just been interceding and asking God to, 
to, to move in this area, right? And people around the world had been praying. And, and, we, and we went in and we found that things were moving. Things were changing and moving. And over a period of about a decade in, in the Philippines, a little bit before I, I, I went and then a little bit after, and then the, during those seven years I was there, there were, we helped with the rescue of 1,275 young girls and women from sex trafficking in, in the Philippines. And, and we, worked with the con we worked on the investigation of all of the, the exploiters, and, and we were able to secure the conviction of hundreds of traffickers. And it's not, it, it's not open season anymore on the sale of young girls in the Philippines. It's just not. Um, after those years in the Philippines, we did, we did studies, and we found that in the three major cities where there had been a lot of sex trafficking, the, the number of children available for sex dropped by 79%, 85%, and 75%. In, in every one of those cities, there was a massive drop, right? And, and those aren't faceless statistics. Those are, those are real girls. Those are real women who are changed, right? And one of them I think about is this young woman we call Charito. It's not her real name, but Charito, when I first got to the Philippines, she was cowering back in her home village because she had been, she had been exploited in a bar, and then her, her neighbors and, and family had found out about it. And she was rescued, but they didn't take care of her in any meaningful way. So she had to go home and then live with the humiliation of what had happened to her. And everybody, so she just was just cowering in fear, right? But we found her and we brought her back and we put her and, and we got her into a special program and she was, uh, and she received counseling and she received care and love and support. And she turned out to be a real warrior. And Charito um, testified in the case that the, the people who ran her bar were convicted and sent to jail. Um, and she became a social worker. She went ahead and graduated from, from university and became a social worker. Now she's a licensed social worker in the Philippines working on an anti-trafficking project. How about that? Right? Yeah. How about that? Yeah. So, um, you know, and, and we started a, a peer support network uh, in, in Cebu, and she was one of the first peer support, uh, like peer mentors, to, to mentor other young girls who were, who were rescued out of trafficking situations. And the theme slogan for the peer support network was from Isaiah 61, right? Uh, it, it was the part where they will be called a planting of the Lord for the sake of his glory, right? They will be oaks of righteousness. So that's what I think about. When I think about Chorito and when I think about these young women who are now called victims, right? God doesn't think about that. He, he, calls, them the, he calls them oaks of righteousness, right? Why oaks of righteousness, right? Because they're being grown up in him, because his, his, his throne is on a foundation of righteousness and justice, right? Because, because oppression isn't in the kingdom, right? Because he's making all things new. Because, um, because he's called his people in to do it, and he's doing it, right? He is doing it. He's doing it now. So uh, that's why we pray, right? We pray because we need to see God's miracles, right? And and also because we are the plan to be, to be the ones who will make it believable to victims of violent injustice that he loves them, right? We, we are that plan. And so um, we pray because we want his power to be released and, and, to, and to bring freedom. We also pray so we can be the people that we need to be to do the work, right? I pray because I'm not enough for the work every day, right? When I come, I'm not, an, I'm not the person who God needs me to be. I'm just me. But I, I need, in the, in the work or to do the calling that God has for me, I need to be 
I, I need Jesus to live in me, right? And so I pray so that I can be transformed, right? Because God is gonna do his work of transformation in the world through people who are transformed, right? And so I need to pray so that God can transform me to be the person who he needs me to be in my space, in my calling, in, and, that's, and that's it, right? So we pray for that. And, and we are the body of Christ, but then, but then I'm not Jesus, right? So then how about, how's that work out, right? Well, that's a miracle, right? How is it? That's a miracle when Jesus is, is, is incarnated in my space because he's transforming me, then I know that that's a miracle. And so we're gonna pray also for that. Um, so I just, in, I just invite you to, um, to pray with us. I invite you to, to go with us. We need your prayers. Uh, and, and, uh, and, the body of, and the body of Christ is responding around the world and needs us all, and, and God needs us all to be, calling us all to be, the people uh, who are responsive to his calling wherever we are and whatever place we are. So I don't know what he's called you to do, um, but what I know is that we're the body together. And I know, uh, I trust that you'll be faithful in your part and I'll be faithful in my part, and we will see God do miracles of transformation, miracles of restoration, miracles of breaking the chains of oppression, miracles of setting the captives free. Um, real captives, real freedom today, right? Amen. Amen.